You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. They set up a little screen at the end of the truck and then came for us one at a time, unshackling us and leading us to the back of the truck. As close as I could work it, counting seconds off in my head, one hippopotami, two hippopotami, the interviews lasted about seven minutes each. My head throbbed with dehydration and caffeine withdrawal. I was third, brought back by the woman with the severe haircut. Up close she looked tired, with bags under her eyes and grim lines at the corners of her mouth. Thanks, I said automatically as she unlocked me with the remote and then dragged me to my feet. I hated myself for the automatic politeness, but it had been drilled into me. She didn't twitch a muscle. I went ahead of her to the back of the truck and behind the screen. There was a single folding chair and I sat in it. Two of them, severe haircut lady and utility belt man, looked at me from their ergonomic super chairs. They had a little table between them with the contents of my wallet and backpack spread out on it. Hello, Marcus, severe haircut lady said. We have some questions for you. Am I under arrest, I asked? This wasn't an idle question. If you're not under arrest, there are limits to what the cops can and can't do to you. For starters, they can't hold you forever without arresting you, giving you a phone call, and letting you talk to a lawyer. And who, boy, was I ever going to talk to a lawyer? What's this for, she said, holding up my phone. The screen was showing the error message you got if you kept trying to get it into its data without giving it the right password. It was a bit of a rude message, an animated hand giving a certain universally recognized gesture, because I like to customize my gear. Cory Doctorow is a blogger for BoingBoing.net and an activist who has worked with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. He's the author of Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom, Eastern Standard Tribe, Someone Comes to Town, Someone Leaves Town, and Overclocked. His new book is Little Brother. Thank you for joining me, Cory. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks, Rick. Cory, your new book is a piece of young adult sort of science fiction, and I wanted to talk to you about your experiences as a youth. Corey, I'd like you to tell me your first experience as a juvenile with science fiction. Well, it's really hard to say. You know, I had um, genre fiction, I guess, in my blood. My dad was a fan. So, you know, when I was a kid, he used to retell me the Conan stories, but he would, uh, they had, he had a, like, a gender-balanced, multiracial group of people standing for Conan called Harry, Larry, and Mary, and the stories always ended with, instead of Conan overthrowing the king and becoming the new ruler, they would establish a, a worker state. Um... But uh, so we had science fiction books around the house and, you know, I saw Star Wars when I was six. And but I think the the two main turning points were uh, when I was nine, I went down to the uh, spaced out library in Toronto that had been established by Judith Merrill when she left the States after um, the Chicago police riots in 1968. She took her family out of America and moved to Canada and she established a, a public science fiction library with her and Frederick Pohl's collections, and she was the writer-in-residence. And going down to the Merrill Collection on a school trip that was then called the Spaced Out Library and meeting Judy, who became my lifelong mentor, um, was a real turning point. The other one was going down to the science fiction bookstore, Baca, which is the oldest remaining science fiction bookstore in the world. Um, We went down there uh, uh, again with some friends from school, and Baca has always employed science fiction writers. I actually worked there for a number of years. And Tanya Huff was working there. And um, I, I kind of described the stuff that I liked. And she walked me back into the used section, because obviously I didn't have a lot of pocket money, and immediately pulled H. Beam Piper's Little Fuzzy off the shelf and handed it to me. And it blew my mind. Well, that's fascinating. I, I didn't realize that uh, Tanya Huff would would work at a bookstore. <laughs> oh, yeah. Tanya Huff worked there. Michelle Segarra still works there. Also writes under Michelle West. Um, Nala Hopkinson worked there. Uh, Ed Greenwood. Me. I, we actually, for the 30th anniversary of the store, did an anthology of original stories written by people who'd worked there. Interesting. Uh, one of the big names of in juvenile science fiction is uh, Robert Heinlein. Mm. Um, and, and this makes me think just the idea, the phrase juvenile science fiction is an interesting phrase because often um, mainstream critics will say science fiction, all science fiction is juvenile. Yeah. <laughs> and and it actually is. It's a young genre. It hasn't been around for a while. So I wonder if you care to talk about um, the idea of w- why science fiction is so ideally suited for young adult. 
Well, I think that, you know, adults and young people read to be entertained. But young people read for a different reason as well. They read to be informed about the under the secret underpinnings of the world. And so they're in dialogue with the literature in a way that um, adults aren't necessarily in dialogue with it. They, um, I think, correctly view literature as a series of testable hypotheses about how the world can be understood. And so they'll read your book, they'll go out, they'll try the stuff that the book says is um, the secret underpinnings of the world out, and they'll come back to the book, or they'll come back to another book, and they'll send you email, they'll send you letters. And um, I think that science fiction has always been about some of those secret underpinnings. It's been about the, the Morlocks. It's been about the people laboring kind of behind the scenes to keep all the machinery running. And so that makes it really well suited for young readers. Heinlein's uh, work was particularly influential. And interestingly enough, I think that his juveniles are often, by, by many, regarded as his best work. And I, I'd like to ask you, what's your favorite Heinlein novel and why? Yeah, I'm inclined to agree that his juveniles really are uh, among his best work anyways. My favorite Heinlein novel would be a, t- a toss-up between How Spacesuit Will Travel and uh, the, the Moon is a Harsh Mistress. Uh, the Moon is a Harsh Mistress, obviously, because it is a revolutionary manual. Uh, and uh, How Spacesuit Will Travel because it's a manual of another kind. It's a manual uh, uh, and an inspiring uh, parable about what it means to take control of the technology in your life. Um, here you have this, this character, Kip, who has no formal training as an engineer, who just decides that if he takes stuff apart and pays close enough attention and puts it back together again until it works, that he can make anything work. And that's a really important lesson, right? The, the uh, ability of people to take apart their tools and reassemble them to suit their hand, it's part of what dignifies the human condition, right? You know, it's, if, you have to, if you have to work in the style dictated by some distant party, I mean, bad enough if it's your boss or the efficiency expert who designed your assembly line, but when it's some, you know, distant engineer or designer who um, never met you, doesn't know how you prefer to work, and you can't modify a single thing about the workflow, well, then you're, you're really, you're just a machine yourself. Um, you know, the, the, everything since Taylorism, everything since the Gilbreths, everything since the Ford assembly line has been about the struggle of people to reclaim the dignity of being able to define how they work. One other aspect of, of Heinlein's work was that he, he, even though he was writing these kind of ripping yarns about kids and, and, and how to do how to do things, he also really, he knew the world around him, didn't he? Yeah, so Heinlein had lots of theories about about what the secret underpinnings of the world were. I disagree with some of those theories, but they were entertaining theories. And I, I think the most important thing about those theories is not their substance, but that they existed at all. That they suggested that there were different critical lenses through which you could view the world that would give you different insights into it. Um, and uh, suggested one of my favorite aphorisms, which is that... Um, all laws are local and no law knows how local it is. So, you know, if, if you read five or six Heinlein books, you could get five or six different lenses that you could use to view the world, some of which were mutually exclusive and all of which generated interesting conclusions, a little like being able to hold Newtonian and quantum views of the universe in your head at the same time. Your new book is, is a book for young adults, and it uh, spins off of some a, a number of interesting notions Tell us a little bit about the, the setup of, of the book. So this is a book about um, kids in San Francisco who are kind of geeky and engaged. They play alternate reality games. They sneak out of school, and their school has become a real surveillance state, and they use technology to evade the surveillance and really make a game of it. And they're out playing an alternate reality game in San Francisco one day when someone blows up the Bay Bridge, and that's bad enough. But what they discover is that it's actually as bad as it is to have a terrorist attack your city. That only lasts for a second. What's even worse is the, um, the terrible immuno uh, response that, ref- that follows where authoritarians use the attack as an excuse to take away the fundamental liberties that really guarantee our safety in the name of keeping us safe and when a shock population let them do it. And they decide that they're going to take those freedoms back. So they, they do that in three ways. The first thing they do is they take back control of their technology, and they, they take the technology around them that has been used up until then to control them and snitch on them and spy on them, and they use it to enable them to communicate in secret and to undermine the efforts of people who are taking away their freedom. Then they get better at understanding the mathematics of rare events so that they can participate in the dialogue and say, well, look, this thing that you're trying to prevent, which is you know terrorism, is actually 
actually a lot less common than something like an abuse of authority that arises when uh, the excuse of terrorism makes it impossible for us to call the police to account. That happens all the time. And then the last thing they do is get involved in electoral politics because unless you're involved in electoral politics, all the marching, sit-ins, strikes, and so on in the world won't make a lasting difference because all you'll do is convince today's president or today's mayor or today's Congress to change things. But if you want to keep tomorrow's president, mayor, or Congress honest, then you've got to make sure that uh, there's a law that kind of seals in those changes. Um, one of the, the themes of your book, one of the things I found really interesting was these idea of detection and security. And I really love the scene in the principal's office where the um, Marcus, who's our, our narrator, um, identifies the principal's tells. And, and I think this idea of tells uh, kind of resonates through the whole book in a way. Yeah. Well, so, you know, tells, it's a poker player's term, right? It's the thing that you do when you're nervous or when you're happy or when you're lying. And I think that there are a lot of keywords and tells in um, corporate and political speech that actually tell us a lot about what people really mean. Like, for example, I, I live in England. Um, the word luxury is often used in England in connection with foodstuffs, like luxury croissant. Luxury is a tell that means not very nice at all. Any foodstuff that has to be identified as luxury is not luxury. Um, uh, Michael Pollan, you know, he says that um, any food that makes a nutritional claim isn't very good for you because you can't make a nutritional claim about a carrot. Um, and, uh, and you know, when, when someone says we take this very seriously, it's a tell that they don't take it seriously at all. Uh, your... Um, characters, once they, um, uh, once they have been captured and released again, they undertake to set up a, a alternate means of communication. And what they use is the Xbox. And, and I found this really interesting. What what made you decide to use the Xbox in this manner? Well, so there's an interesting thing about an interesting tension in. Uh, one of the ways that we market technology. So one of the ways that we market technology now is as old as the razor blade, right? It's it's the idea that I give you something for free or below cost, and then I sell you add-ons for it. And um, the wrinkle on that that comes from technology with things like cell phones and Xboxes is um, I'll sell you an Xbox below cost, and then I'll sell someone else the right to put software on it. And the more Xboxes there are in the field, the more I can charge for the right to put software on it, right? It's this, this platform strategy. Well, the, the thing about this is that it requires that the, the people who use the Xboxes not be able to install their own software, that the only software that you can install is the software that's authorized by Microsoft. So that's the console business model. But one of the side effects of this is that it puts a lot of extremely cheap and sometimes free, in the case of, say, mobile phones, puts that hardware into the hands of lots and lots of people. And if you can figure out a way to jailbreak that equipment so that you can install your own code on it, well, then you have ubiquitous free platforms that people can use, sort of subsidized by someone else's failed business model. Um, the Xbox itself, the first generation Xbox, was cracked by a guy named Andrew Bunny Huang, who was an MIT electrical engineering student uh, doing his PhD, who broke the Xbox as an academic exercise. Uh, Bunny now runs a company called Chumbi. Uh, and he went to give a presentation on the security mistakes made by Microsoft that allowed him to break the Xbox. And um, his advisor made him get uh, legal advice because he was worried that an engineer describing his engineering process might be illegal in this country now under a copyright law called the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. And we were involved in that in Electronic Frontier Foundation. But he's become a real... Um, uh, flag bearer for the reverse engineering movement, for this idea that the way that people get involved in technology is by taking it apart and putting it back together again. And I thought that that would be a really inspiring thing for the kids who read the book to, to think about. Uh, the kids who read the book speak in a, a language, and that's a kind of a, kind of a teen argot. And I wonder if you talk about the difference between the spoken language, the written language, the um, texting language. Uh, could you talk about creating those in the book and writing those? And as a prose writer, uh, how you uh, attacked these various portions of the book? So it was pretty intuitive. I, I think that, um, you know, I listen to how people talk. And that's, that's I guess, the, um, 
the, the key to writing convincing dialogue is having the, the right ear for it. I teach a lot of writing students, and there's some people who just don't have an ear for dialogue. Um, I, you know, obviously the way people write when they're writing technical material or when they're communicating online is something that I've got a lot of direct experience with. Um, and then, you know, I, I, I was a young person. I listened to how young people speak. The, uh, the, the particularized slang may change from generation to generation, but the, uh, the reason that you use it, the kind of exclusive and inclusive reasons to use it, you know, you include your friends in and you exclude grownups out, is, uh, is as old as being young. So that part actually was, was, came surprisingly easy. Um, in, in societies where there are very stratified uh, dialects of language, so in the Caribbean, in the United Kingdom, and a lot of the, the Commonwealth, where um, uh, what you speak determines your social class and vice versa, uh, it's generally the case that the lower you are on the social ladder, the more of those dialects you understand. So the very poor people understand all the dialects spoken all the way up to the very rich. The very rich people only understand each other's dialect. And so, you know, the one thing about young people is they're, they're generally conversant with all the dialects. Oh, that's fascinating. It you use a lot of really interesting literary techniques in this book. Could you talk about using the how-to as a literary device? Because it's really entertaining. Well, so uh, first of all, science fiction has always been very discursive. So it, there's an, a long and honorable tradition in the field of breaking off to give a technical lecture. That's that's always been a part of the field. You, Mary Shelley does it. I mean, this is a this is something that is absolutely kind of par for the course in, in the field. And the trick is to do it well. Um, I think that Marcus, the, the point of view character, by dint of being a very geeky 17-year-old kid, is already accustomed to having these kind of overheated, frothy conversations in which he says, the most amazing thing just happened in my video game, uh, and then goes on to describe something and meets with a blank stare and says, okay, you know video games, right? Oh, no, no, no. You know computers, right? No, no, no. You know the internet, right? And then kind of, kind of dials it back until we're like... All right, so you know that thing under your desk. So some people play games on those. You, you know, game like Monopoly, and and kind of builds from there. Um, that's that's actually really um, normal for that kind of character. So it worked, I think, in part because that kind of character is the kind of person who has those discussions. Actually, I, I'm I'm the on the receiving end of those sorts of lectures from my 19 year old son who tells me, "Dad, you don't know how Final Cut Pro works. Uh -huh, <laughs> so, uh -huh, uh -huh. You you can do this and this and this. Why why can't you just help me?" Right, right. <laughs> One of the other things I think that's really interesting about this book is you write a lot of stuff that takes us outside the book. I mean, generally, when you're writing fiction, it's one thing you want to keep the reader involved in the story and, and you know, moving along. And, and this is, uh, on every count, this is a ripping yarn. But there are many at parts of the book where you tell us something, and, and I think a lot of the people who are reading this book are going to think, I've got to look that up on the internet in Wikipedia or, or wherever. Right. Well, yeah, sure. And I think that the era of the um, explicitly instructional counterculture book like Steal This Book is probably drawn to a close because the information that you need to write that kind of instructional material today uh, changes so fast that you could never get it into print in time. Instead, the, the new subversive access to information is not about telling people stuff. It's about telling people which keywords they need to look up. It's which questions that if you ask them of the internet, you'll get an interesting answer. You know, and I've worked as a journalist, and one of the most provocative and interesting things that can happen to an investigative journalist is someone will call them up and say, here's a question you might think of asking some this, this particular person, and uh, you might be surprised by the answer that you get. And so giving, uh, arming young people with questions, questions about their liberty, about technology, and so on, um, rather than giving them solutions, I think uh, makes the book more into a verb, more into something you do instead of a noun, just something that you that you have. Uh, and, and there's a great example of this where you tell the the reader, where Marcus tells the reader to to Google how to. Uh, uh, spoof your cell phone number, uh -huh, which sure. which actually I went ahead and did. <laughs> and, and there's I can if I want. I, there's all sorts have you of tried stuff. it yet? Uh, well, there's all, I have to crack my iPhone and buy uh -huh, software. Uh -huh, and, uh -huh. yeah, I'm not. My <laughs> friend Pavlos does these great presentations live on stage where he will ask someone in the audience, usually like the the conference chair or someone who's well known to the entire audience, 
for their phone number and, and ask their permission to do a little demonstration. Then he'll plug his computer into the speaker uh, and he will, um, using a spoof, their spoof phone number, break into their voicemail and change their outgoing message. It's very <laughs> funny. He did it to me in front of a group of about 600 people in Amsterdam once. Uh, that, that sounds, well, perhaps less funny. Um, it, when we're talking about the how-tos and, and the uh, information online, it, a lot of the, the how-tos in this book are online in, uh, on Instructables, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. So one of my old interns from the Electronic Frontier Foundation works at Instructables now, and he got a hold of the, an early copy of the book and emailed me kind of in, a, in one of those superheated froths going, oh, my God, I love this book. How can we do a bunch of Instructables to tie in with it? And I was like, all right. Go do some Instructables to tie in with it. So I really didn't have much to do with them except looking them over. That was all written by fans. It's really, it's it's fan fiction. Well, that now, many authors don't welcome fan fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and could you explain to me why you do? Well, so I think that some of it has to do with just recognizing the cognitive basis of fiction. So I think that somewhere in our minds is a little simulator we use to run the people in our lives. So, you know, I know what my, when, when I think, what would my mother think of this? What I'm doing is I'm actually consulting a little model I have of my mother in my head, who's back in there kind of ticking along, doing what my mother does, at least as near as I can understand it. And so when I think, what will my mother think of this? I, I can find that out by consulting my little model of my mother. I think that the way that we understand fiction is by spinning up the same kind of model of the people in the book. That's why we care what happens to them, because we have empathy for these modeled people in our minds. And so when the story ends, the people stay in our minds in the same way that when our friends die, we can still ask ourselves, I wonder what my grandfather would have thought of this. Even though he's not still around, I still have that model of him in the back of my head, and I can consult it. So I think that it's only natural. And I think that this is in part why you hear writers say things like, well, I tried to get the character to do X and she refused and insisted on doing Y. They're not just being precious. This is actually about having a model of a person in your head and that model insisting with a certain degree of autonomy uh, what is and isn't true to the model. Um, But the same thing happens to fans. When you close the cover, the people keep running around and it's natural to want to keep telling their stories. We've been telling the stories of the fictional and real people in our lives and making them our own. And it's really an extension of that idea of making tools into our own, right? It's the ability to make our cognitive tools, our stories, which are how we understand the world, our own. So I think that there's a certain immorality to telling people they're not supposed to do this, right? It's a, it's a kind of arrogance to say, well, I here atop my mountain in my numinous realm in which, my, in which I as an artiste uh, uh, am able to make these privileged pieces of art uh, am here to create material that you, the consumer, are meant to read and passively consume. And when you're done, uh, that's all you get to do with them. You, you are only allowed to understand my book in the way that I've intended you to understand it, not in the way that's best suited to you. It's like insisting that they not uh, read it out of sequence or go back and look up a favorite passage, you know, cover to cover the way the author intended or not at all. Um, and so uh, I figure that, that it's just good sense to let people make their own stories based on my stories. This kind of uh, just steps right in into your um, work with uh, you know we met, you mentioned it earlier the DCMA uh, DMCA DMCA. Um, could you talk about how your work your work for that and maybe how that feeds into your interest in fan fiction? Well, so the Digital Millennium Copyright Act and indeed all the changes to copyright law that have attempted to adjust to the digital realm have been signal failures. They've been they've just been disasters. Um, They've been predicated on uh, a really silly notion that arose when we started talking about an information economy, the notion that um, the the more uh, information technology we had, the easier it would be to exclude people from information unless they paid for it, right? That, that what we could gradually do is build an information economy based on denying people access to information except under selective circumstances. This is like an industrial economy based on a shortage of machines, right? It's just not very plausible. And the fact is, the more IT we have, the more uh, people are able to access information without permission. Now, on the one hand, that's bad news if your business is built on exclusive access to information. 
But on the other hand, it's pretty good news if your business improves the more people there are who can get access to information without fetter. Now, universal access to all human knowledge has been a, a, a goal of humanitarian and enlightenment organizations for centuries. It's not a, a, a bug, it's a feature, and, and we're getting closer and closer to that. And there are all kinds of benefits to being a participant in, in that kind of knowledge-sharing economy. You know, my barber in Los Angeles when I moved there last year he never used the internet. The way I found him, though, was I went on Google and I typed in barber near 90039, my zip code, and up came a shop. Now, he's a participant in the information economy. His cost of customer acquisition has fallen to zero, right? But he never had to touch the internet to do it. The reason Google is able to do that is no one's able to assert exclusive rights over uh, the web pages that they um, that they harvest to make their search engine over the links that they analyze and over the information contained in it, right? It's the absence of exclusive rights that gives the economic boost to all those participants in the information economy. So we have been trying really hard to make computers act like not computers, to make the internet, the world's most perfect copying machine, less good at copying. And And, you know, another way of saying an internet that's less good at copying is an internet that's less good. Right? The metric on which we measure the success of a computer or the internet is how faithfully, quickly, and cheaply it moves information around. So uh, the law that we've tried to pass to make that happen has been a disaster, uh, and it's actually been a string of disasters, one after the other. Uh, in one instance, uh, it's criminalized uh, the majority of Internet users you know, who are file sharers and copyright infringers. I go and I give talks at places like Disney, and I say... Is there anyone in this room who doesn't think them, think of themselves as a copyright criminal in some sense? And no one puts up their hands, right, including the copyright lawyers. They all know that it's impossible to use the network to be a, an information worker without violating the copyright law. And what that does is it puts every single person at risk of having their network connection terminated because they're using it in a way that's not uh, coherent with the law. Now, remember, the network connection delivers to you freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, and freedom of press. And the idea that, you, that everyone is liable to have that taken away from them because everyone is presumptively guilty of copyright infringement is a disaster to begin with. It's been a disaster, though, in other ways for, for um, competition policy. So uh, uh, the DMCA allows people who make copyrighted works to dictate what kind of devices can play them back. And that's why um, when you uh, buy an iPod, you can take your CDs and put them onto the iPod, but you can't take your DVDs and put them onto the iPod because the people who make DVDs are allowed to say what kind of devices are allowed to play back DVDs and what they're allowed to do with them. We've never really had this regime, right? Making a book doesn't entitle you to, to uh, set the terms under which it can be read. Um, so we're entering into a new and, and fundamentally unbalanced kind of world. Um, and then uh, lastly, it's been a disaster for free speech and free expression. Uh, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act makes provision for the removal of information from the Internet on uh, the affidavit that the information infringes copyright without any, without any uh, supplemental evidence. So the Church of Scientology has gone after people who have published material that's critical of them and said, well, that material is also infringing of our copyrights. We insist that it vanish immediately, and it does. Uh, ISPs, by and large, don't investigate these claims and merely follow them. The um, Oxford Internet Institute did a study where they took John Stuart Mill's 19th century classic on liberty, and they put it up on a bunch of web servers, and then they sent letters saying, I'm John Stuart Mill. That's my 19th century book. I'd like you to remove it. And one and all, everyone except Access for All in the Netherlands took the material down, no questions asked. This is a overturning of the presumption of innocence. It really is. Yeah, it's a, it's an overturning of the presumption of innocence. It's an overturning of the rule of law. It's a, a, Many legal scholars have described this as private law. What this allows is rights holders to essentially draft legislation, right? The legislation that says DVDs can't be moved to iPods without having to go to Congress, right? All they need to do is put a technical protection measure that um, impedes moving the stuff to the iPod, and then it's illegal to make anything that breaks that technical protection measure, even if the law allows you otherwise to move your video onto your iPod. Well, while I understand the need for the freedom of information to move stuff and back and forth, it seems there's one kind of information that people should be able to own, and that's their, I guess, their digital identity. I, I To my mind, there's a bunch of information about me out there, all my bank account transactions, every time I use a credit card, every time I use the ATM card, every time I go to uh, um, buy something on the internet, all the websites I visit, all the email I send. 
Um, and that essentially, I don't own that, and I think I, I should. I agree, and I think that that's um, that's the inverse of this. So you know, the record companies have figured out that getting a song off the internet is about as hard as getting food coloring out of a swimming pool, right? Um, and yet, we have all of these surveillance creeps who gather enormous amounts of information about us and blithely say, well, nothing bad will ever come of it because we'll be able to keep it safe forever. Well, the fact is that information of value takes on the characteristics of like an immortal zombie, right? It stalks the internet forever. So, you know, when the um, Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs in the United Kingdom, when I, where I live, loses the financial data of 25 million households, you can bet that that information is just going to hang around like a bad smell forever and that we're never going to be able to get rid of it. The internet doesn't forget that kind of things in the same way that it's never going to forget what, you know, Paris Hilton's genitals look like, right? That stuff is just stuck there on the internet, right? Once there are enough copies of it, it doesn't go anywhere. Um, and so, sorry, I accidentally started my iPod. Um, <laughs> uh, where was I? Paris Hilton's genitals. Uh, always a good place to stop. Um, so uh, I think that the natural answer to this is the answer that, you know, karate instructors give to their students. You know, sensei, sensei, if, what do I do if I happen to be walking down a dark alley in a bad part of town in the middle of the night and there's no one else around and three guys step out of the alley? don't be in a dark alley in the middle of night in the bad part of town where three guys might step out of the alley, right? How do we stop our information from leaking on the internet? Don't collect it. I think of that kind of personal information as a little like uranium, right? So I come from Ontario where we mine uranium. The, the bombs dropped in Japan were in 45 were refined Ontario uranium, right? So we, we mine a lot of uranium and uranium when it comes out of the ground is pretty non-toxic. You can actually order it through Amazon and have it shipped to your house because it's pretty safe. Once you refine it into plutonium, it's the metal from hell. It lasts 750,000 years. There's no dose of it so small that it can't give you cancer, and um, it's almost impossible to contain. When you have one little bit of personal information, like which bus you took this morning, or which toll plaza you went through, or what your social insurance number is, that's just a, a tiny bit of un unrefined uranium. But once we convert it to plutonium by aggregating it with millions of other transaction details, including details from other people all over the world, then it's plutonium, and it'll never go away. And the only way to stop it from becoming plutonium is not to make it in the first place. And this uh, comes up actually in the book when uh, at one point Marcus is on his Xnet and one of these little cute internet quizzes comes up and it asks, starts asking him the questions and he realizes that just two pieces of information put together allow anybody to narrow down who he is really quickly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, this was something that arose a lot when whenever anyone talks about a thing like a globally unique identifier, like an RFID tag that, you you know, say your your passport or your transit pass that you have in your pocket. They're like, well, you know, no one knows who that is. You're kind of moving through time and space. Maybe we could even anonymize it so it, it wouldn't give off its, its unique number. It would just say, I am a transit pass. But when you throw in with that another one that says, I am this kind of shirt and these are my washing instructions and I am this kind of hairbrush and here's how I should be disposed of correctly – and I am this kind of computer and so on, no personally identifying information, just generic identifiers, they together form a unique hash, right? They together form a unique picture of you because you're the only one wearing the same shirt and those shoes and driving that car and carrying that computer uh, that anyone knows about. And so now you can be uniquely identified and tracked through time and space. And again, this also plays a, a, a big part in the book with the, the fast track passes, which is a technology, I, I believe, that right now, anybody who has a fast track pass, they can be tracked a lot of places and probably are. Oh, yeah. Well, the California Highway, Highway Patrol doesn't uh, make any bones about it. They have fast track readers on the freeways that they just use to read people's identity as they drive, drive past, like a license plate camera, without, um, without deducting the toll. And those devices don't have any mechanism by which you can identify when they're being read, nor a means of shutting them off, save putting them in a little plastic bag. That um, puts us essentially under anybody with a fast track pass under 247 surveillance. You, yeah. They can track you anywhere. And it's not just the CHP, right? It's any surveillance creep who's got an RFID reader. Corey, let's talk about RFIDs. They play a big part in this book, and I think you you have you yourself are very interested in them in all their uses and how to abuse them as well. Yeah, so radio frequency ID tags, most broadly construed, are, are any devices that broadcast a unique identifier 
Um, the ones that we tend to think about most are the invisible ones that ride in things like our passports, our, our uh, transit passes, and so on. And these ones, they're, they're called uh, passive. And the way that they work is um, they have a circuit in them, and when they're bombarded with radio energy, say by waving them over our door lock or uh, over a transit turnstile, uh, they wake up, they light up, and they beam back their number. And these things are blithely considered to be extremely secure because they can only be read at a, at, at a very close distance because to bombard them with that radio energy at a great distance would require um, so much energy that the birds in the sky between you and the radio frequency identifier would be like instantly flash fried and fall out of the sky. So it would be very hard to do that as, on a subtle basis. But you can imagine, for example, say there was a turnstile uh, at street level at the, you know, at the 24th and Mission BART that had a reader... Uh, and every time someone went through it, that reader excited their card. Now imagine there's someone sitting in the building across the street with a very focused antenna pointed at the reader. That person can read all the RFID tags as they go through the turnstile without actually having to do the exciting. That's happening somewhere else. As these tags become more common, and as their uses expand, you know, our door locks, our car locks, uh, instant payment systems, and so on, the readers are going to be everywhere, which means that someone with a nice sensitive antenna is going to be able to read all kinds of stuff. One of the things that, that interests me about this book is uh, statistics. There aren't many ripping yarns out there that, that have statistics play such an important and central part in this book. And I'd like to, you to talk about a couple of, of specific aspects. One of the, the things that you talk about is uh, the paradox of the false positive. And I'd like you to talk about that also as a, in, in a sense as a literary technique as well. Well, so the paradox of the false positive says, essentially, when you're looking for something very rare, you need to have a test that's very sensitive. And that makes a certain amount of intuitive sense, but um, we still are inclined to believe, for example, that a 99% accurate test must be pretty good, even when we're looking for stuff that happens way less than 1% of the time. So imagine you have a disease called super AIDS that infects one in a million people. So a random sample of a million people would turn up one case of the disease, and you have a test that's 99% accurate, which means that 99% of the time, if it identifies you as having the disease or being healthy, it, it, you assume it's correct, then you test a million people. Well, if it's wrong 1% of the time, that means that of a million people, it'll be wrong 10,000 times. So out of that million people, it'll say 10,000 people have the disease. And out of that million people, we know that statistically only one of them has the disease. So that that 99% accurate test ends up being wrong 9,999 times out of 10,000. The reason this matters to security and policy and freedom is that we use this kind of test to figure out who's allowed to get on an airplane, right? We have some criteria that we think, you know, 80% of the time or 60% of the time identify someone as a potential terrorist. And then we apply that to a population in which the probability that someone is a terrorist is way less than 1%. And what we end up doing is nearly always, in fact, so frequently that it's almost inevitable that any time this test identifies someone as being a terrorist or a person of interest, they've done nothing wrong. Um, you're, uh, you have a lot of uh, talk in this book, too, about security that's informed by, by Bruce Schneier. Mm -hmm. So uh, I want, I'd like you to talk about Bruce Schneier's work and how that feeds into your work. And he actually provides an afterwards for your, for your book. Yeah, that's right. So Schneier, I think, is one of the great popularizers of, of good thinking about security through books like Applied Cryptography, which are for mathematicians and, and cryptographers, but also through books for the laity, like Beyond Fear and Secrets and Lies. Bruce has really done a very good job in elucidating security for average people and, most importantly, um, uh, dispelling the idea that security and privacy or security and freedom are on opposite ends of the teeter-totter, that freedom is itself a security measure. Um, one of the things that uh, Bruce uh, is famous for is talking very well about why secrecy and security are antithetical to one another, that there's no experimental methodology for figuring out whether or not your security system works except telling people about it and seeing if they can find a, a flaw in it. You know, anyone can design a security system so well that he himself can't think of a way of breaking it. But that just proves that you've got a security system that's um, proof against people who are dumber than you. So unless there's nobody smarter than you in the world, you don't really have a good security system. So when, you know, we have these secret algorithms that are used to figure out which um, communiques in the NSA's warrantless surveillance program are then forwarded to human intelligence officers or uh, which uh, people should and shouldn't be allowed to fly, that system, that security system, can't be assumed to be secure 
uh, unless we know how it works, unless its details and its workings are public. In this book, the war against terrorism becomes uh, more a war against the populace of San Francisco. And I'm wondering, you talk about terrorism, and I think you raise some really interesting points in that when we're afraid, they've won. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, terrorists, I think we tend to think that terrorists are like anti-aviation activists, right? And the the reason that they blow up planes is because they hate planes. Right. Terrorists don't actually aren't opposed to aviation. Right. Terrorists aren't um, uh, great proponents of the box cutter. Right. Removing box cutters doesn't end terrorism. Right. Keeping uh, uh, airplanes safe doesn't end terrorism. Terrorists create terror. The extent to which we allow terrorists to drive our actions. You know, I have a friend who's a, a Wikipedia editor who spends a lot of time fighting in the really big flame wars on Wikipedia. And I said, how do you do it? And she said, well, the first step is don't let assholes rent space in your head, right? Don't let the other guy drive your agenda. If crazy people drive your agenda and determine how you work, then you're crazy too. Um, you know, the, in, in uh, the military academies in this country, teach about how a, a good uh, strategist tries to get into their opponent's decision loop to force their opponent to do uh, the thing that they want them to do. And if terrorists want to destabilize our society and our economy and remove our liberties and make us uh, unhappy and uh, ruin our lives, then the best way to do it is to convince our authority figures that they should be fighting terrorists. Hey, your your point of view character, Marcus, yes, one of the things I really like about this book is that he's not always right. In fact, he's almost always wrong, as much wrong as he is right. And I wonder if you care to talk about that uh, as as a writer, you know, creating a character who is really vulnerable. Well, you know, he's he's trying, right? And he's um, he's doing the, the what computer people do when they want to solve a problem, which is making a lot of mistakes fast. Uh, you know, Thomas Watson said to double your success rate, triple your failure rate. And I think that... Um, one of the great beauties of being a computer person is you realize that there's always an undo key. You know, uh, unlike, say, taking apart a car engine and then putting it back together wrong and blowing, you know, something important that you'll never be able to replace, there's always an undo key if you do the wrong thing with your computer. You just have to follow good protocols. And so he makes a lot of mistakes, but they're honest mistakes, and he learns from them, and that's the best thing you, that you can do. And one of the ways, one of the things he learns, and this kind of feeds back into a lot of the things you talk about, is is he needs to tell the truth. And you point this out that keep you keep email because the truth is not as bad as you sometimes remember it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we. I mean, a lot of um, the issue around terrorists and statistics have to do with another uh, cognitive effect of statistics, which is then called uh, confirmation bias. Um, if you read The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and you found out that 42 is the secret to the life, the universe, and everything, you've probably found that the number 42 started cropping up all over the place because you're uh, now looking for the number 42. You're, you're having a confirmation bias experience. And likewise, when you're told that the great risk to children, for example, is strangers in raincoats with candy, you start to notice reports of this and you see it everywhere. Now, of course, the real risk to children statistically is their family, right? Just like most of us who are murdered are murdered by a close relative. But because we have a dominant myth that says the real risk is, is strangers at some external force, Every time something happens uh, that involves an external force, we register it. And every time something happens that's, um, that's uh, common or, or that, that happens internally that doesn't fit with our confirmation bias, it kind of slides off our mind without making an impression. When you wrote this book, um, could you talk about the, uh, just the, the, your uh, method of writing, uh, plotting it? Was it out, did you, do you outline? or? Mm-hmm. In... Well, what I usually do when I write is I write a treatment up that's kind of usually a couple thousand words that talks about the kind of things that are happening in the book and maybe a couple of the big set pieces. Um, and then um, I, uh, I write a couple of pages a day usually where I um, will write towards those big, those big landmarks, those big signposts in the plot. Um, but without a detailed outline of what's going to happen in every chapter. And what I just try to do to keep the story moving along is follow the simple rule that your character should have a problem, that he should be trying to solve the problem intelligently, he should be failing, and things should be getting worse. And if that happens on every page, the story just keeps clipping along because that's that's the, the core of dramatic tension. Um, with this book, 
I wrote it a lot faster than a couple of pages a day. This book kind of battered its way out through my fingertips. I wrote the whole book in eight weeks from the day I started it to the day I finished it. Uh, and there were days when I wrote until I had to stop because my hands hurt too much. Uh, it just seemed to want to get out. This book deals with a lot of really important topics. I mean, it's a book that, you know, I think a lot of people should read um, that uh, affects every single second of our lives. And yet it's a young adult sort of science fiction novel. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you could talk about why choose to deal with these topics in that manner. Well, I think young adults are uh, more likely to want to actually read a book and do something about it than just read a book and think hard about it. So that that made a lot of sense. And as I said before, young adult fiction has a consequentiality because young people read not just to be entertained but to find out how the world works. Um, and I just had a daughter, and I want her to grow up in a world where there's literature that encourages young people to think critically about authority and about the world that they're going to inherit. You have a new book coming out in uh September. It's called Content. Mm-hmm. We talked earlier about have a spacesuit will travel. Uh, to a certain extent, I think your motto might be, in some cases, have soapbox will travel. Uh-huh. You're, you're a master of the polemic. You use them in this book a lot, and you've, you're doing them online for Locus. Could you talk about writing polemics? Well, so uh, I think that the job of the science fiction writer is to um, think well about how technology and society are interacting and changing one another and then report on it and sometimes try to change it. And sometimes the best way to do that is with a position paper that's very staid and and legalistic. You can look up some of the filings I did for the FCC and the UN if you'd like to read some of those. And sometimes the way to do that is by standing on a soapbox. And I used to go to Speaker's Corner in London once a month with a group of people just as kind of speaker training. We used to stand there amid the hecklers and the radical Muslims burning American flags and the Bible bashers and the the ultra-right-wing people and everyone else. We used to sit there and, and we would shout about copyright and sometimes the best way to do that is with a short story, and sometimes it's with a novel, and sometimes it's with a, a polemic. And, and could you talk about where you get these polemics published, and and you know you're you're making sure they reach the people who need to hear them? Yeah, so I, I publish them in lots of different places. Uh, I, I publish in Make Magazine a lot. That's um, a magazine for people who make stuff, uh, who like to take apart stuff and put it back together again publish in Locus, which is where science fiction writers and people involved in the industry go to get news about the industry. And I, I, I think that within the, the, the world of science fiction writing, there is a wing that really gets this stuff and is trying to lead the way into a literature and commerce of, of, um, uh, uh, of science fiction that is intended to be copied, that's engaged with the 21st century instead of denying the 21st century, which you'd think would be a natural for science fiction. Um, and uh, Information Week every now and again, which is for uh, chief information officers. Obviously, that's a good spot for it. But also places like Forbes magazine. And um, and I just wrote something for The Bookseller, uh, which is the oldest um, magazine for people who sell books in the world. In the United Kingdom, it's their 150th anniversary. Uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, things like Radar magazine. Uh, one last question. One of my favorite technologies is our books. Mm-hmm. It's a really mature technology. It's a, what four hundred plus years old. I mean, we're we're heading towards half. Are we might actually be more than five hundred years old at this point. Mm-hmm. And I, you you could you talk about the, what do you think that it's going to be superseded anytime soon? No, I think that the future composts the past. So new media come along and they succeed on axes that are um, distinct from the axes that the old media succeeded on. You know, opera isn't, uh, or rather, television isn't great because it's just like going to the theater only more so. Television is great because it's great at doing the things that television is good at. And what's interesting is that when television and, and films came along, all the stories that we used to tell on stage that weren't actually really well suited to the stage, but that was the only thing we had, were peeled off the stage and ended up in films and later in TV. And what was left on the stage was stuff that was really stagey, that was really stuff that you wanted to see as a live performance. Um, in the same way, I think that there are some stories that are better told in electronic form, uh, uh, in wholly electronic media, and those will peel away from the codex, from the, from the bound book. Uh, but the book has some very signal virtues that I think will make it uh, stick around for a long time. It's cheap. It's really important. Um, it's pretty durable. Uh, and it um, doesn't do anything else. I think that's actually the most important one, is that it's uh, a book doesn't invite you to stop reading and play a video game while you're looking at it. And it's really hard to sit and stare at a screen for more than 10 minutes without flipping into another window. 
Uh, and the more technologically sophisticated you are, the greater the probability that after looking at your screen for a few minutes, you're going to go check an IM or an SMS or, or rather a, an RSS feed or an email or look something up on Wikipedia or Google it or whatever. Um, it's very hard to do one thing for a long time in front of a screen, and it's very easy to do it in front of a book because the book doesn't try to get you to do anything else. We've been speaking with Corey Doctorow. His new book is Little Brother. Thank you for joining me, Corey. Thanks, Rick. Teaching people how to use technology is always exciting. It's so cool to watch people figure out how the technology around them can be used to make their lives better. Andrew's great, too. We made an excellent team. We trade off explaining how it all worked. Barbara was pretty good at this stuff to begin with, of course. It turned out that she'd covered the crypto wars, the period in the early 90s when civil liberties groups like the Electronic Frontier Foundation fought for the right of Americans to use strong crypto. I dimly knew about that period, but Barbara explained it to me in a way that made me get goose pimples. It's unbelievable today, but there was a time when the government classed crypto as a munition and made it illegal for anyone to export it or use it on national security grounds. Get that? We used to have illegal math in this country. The National Security Agency were the real movers behind the ban. They had a crypto standard that they said was strong enough for bankers and their customers to use, but not so strong that the mafia would be able to keep its book secret from them. That standard, DES-56, was said to be practically unbreakable. Then, one of the EFF's millionaire co-founders built a $250,000 DES-56 cracker that could break the cipher in two hours. Still, the NSA argued that it should be able to keep American citizens from possessing secrets that it couldn't pry into. Then EFF dealt its death blow. In 1995, they represented a Berkeley mathematics grad student called Dan Bernstein in court. Bernstein had written a crypto tutorial that contained computer code that could be used to make a cipher stronger than DES-56. Millions of times stronger. As far as the NSA was concerned, that made his article into a weapon, and therefore unpublishable. Well, it may be hard to get a judge to understand crypto and what it means, but it turns out that the average appeals court judge isn't real enthusiastic about telling grad students what kind of scholarly articles they're allowed to write. The crypto wars ended with a victory for the good guys when the Ninth Circuit Appellate Division Court ruled that code was a form of expression protected under the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. If you've ever bought something on the internet, or sent a secret message, or checked your bank balance, you use crypto that EFF legalized. Good thing, too. The NSA just isn't that smart. Anything that they know how to crack, you can be sure that terrorists and mobsters can get around, too. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.